your Bibles out. God is good. Hold your Bible up. This is the Word of God. This is life itself to us. This is Jesus having written down a record of things for us to do and follow. Uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God and came and dwelt amongst us. So this whole book is all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Here's why it's important that you know that. Everybody who's ever been born on this planet has a void in their heart, and they look to fill it as best they can. They feel an emptiness. They feel a need for belonging, a need for family, the need for acceptance, and they turn to a thousand different things. This world is chasing after. It's desperate. It's just desperate to fill that emptiness within. And they try alcohol, and that doesn't satisfy. And they try drugs, and that doesn't satisfy. They try relationships and bounce from one relationship to the next, hoping that another sinful fallen person can somehow make them whole. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can do that. Uh, the Jesus Revolution movie, uh, I, I don't recommend uh, movies as a general rule. I've recommended two in my 35-plus uh, years of ministry, and that is The Passion of the Christ from Mel Gibson because I've never seen a more accurate biblical portrayal of what Jesus went through to secure your salvation and mine. But this movie, The Jesus Revolution, if you have any desire to know what the history is of, of Calvary chapels, it's, it's tidally put in that movie for us. Uh, Greg Laurie, a, a friend of mine, a Calvary Chapel pastor down in Riverside, is the one who uh, threw his, uh, his weight behind the making of this movie, and it accurately portrays a man that I had the privilege of serving uh, for a number of years at Calvary Chapel when the Lord had called Kathy and I to to California was to go to seminary, and I had talked with Pastor Chuck about that since my background was Calvary Chapel here in town, and Chuck encouraged me, go to seminary, and I said, Chuck, I've heard you make fun of seminary. Your, your whole life from the pulpit, you call it cemetery. Why on God's name would you ask me to go there? And he says, because that's what God has for you. I, I, I had difficulty arguing with the man's wisdom. And in honor of him this morning, I have worn a shirt that is appropriate, of course. The uh, Calvary Chapel dress code is, of course, Hawaiian shirts, blue jeans, flip-flops in the summer. It's all, it's all good. But it's not about what the clothes you wear. It's about the God you serve. It's Jesus Christ. And that's the thing that set me free. Quite frankly, I'd been looking in all the wrong places to fill that hole in my life as a teenager. Greg Laurie was about 17 when God began working on his heart, and so was I. In fact, Greg Laurie and I are exactly the same age, 30, <laughs> in dog years. <laughs> That's different. But to tell you the truth, every single one of us is on a journey. It's on a journey. We're either on a journey to fill that hole, and we're hunting for Christ but don't know that. We're still in the midst of trying the X, Y, and Z only to find out none of that satisfies, and your life winds up in a tailspin. And sometimes God brings us to the end of our rope so we can look up and say, I don't know if there is a God in heaven, but there is, if there is, and if Jesus Christ is your son, would you come into my heart and life and save me? Because my life's in the dumpster. Would you turn my life around, Lord? And that begins the journey of Christianity. It is really that simple. It is total surrender. 
It doesn't mean that all of a sudden, the moment you pray that prayer and the moment we bring you up out of the baptismal waters, that your face glows radiant, you put on white gleaming robes, and you look like an angel and flap your wings. Not exactly that, but you begin a journey. And that's what we have before us here in in Mark chapter 9, if you'd like to turn there in your Bible. Chapter 9 of the Gospel of Mark, uh, verse 1, is a really bad place to put a chapter break. Uh, don't, I don't want to, don't get ruffled, but the chapter and verse divisions were not a part of the original text. They were added, uh, in fact, the first chapter and break divisions uh, came, come to us from about 350 A.D. in the margins of the Codex Vaticanus, one of the earliest copies of Scripture. But these divisions that we have were put together about the 13th century by a guy named Professor Stephen Langton at the University of Paris, later the Archbishop of Canterbury. And he divided our Bible into modern chapter and verse divisions about 1227. This is a bad... I think he, was, he fell asleep at the table here. Either that or he's hangry or he's mixed up or he's hypoglycemic. I don't know. But this, he must have been burning the midnight oil and forgot that verse 1 really belongs in the previous context. It should close out. But So just erase that 9 in your mind. That's not a good place to break it. And Mark's original audience didn't have chapter and verse divisions, so they read, read right through it. And the context makes perfect sense. In light of that, it says in the previous chapter, verse 34, then he called Jesus, uh, the crowd, along with his disciples, and said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. It begins the journey when you choose to say, Jesus, everything I've tried, I've failed at. I've tried to fill this hole in my heart, and I can't. I'm trying to fill it with social media and contacts and how many likes and dislikes and and all of this, and I find myself at the point of suicide because everybody mocks me online, and it's, it's hard, and there's bullies out there. Cyber bullying, I think, in many ways is worse than the physical bullying that most of us went through in junior high. I hate it with all that is within me, and so does Jesus. The journey begins when you simply swing open the door of your heart and say, Jesus, would you be my Lord and Savior? I give you my life. When you give him your life, you give him the good, the bad, and the ugly, and he washes away all of your sins. None of us deserve that, I least of all. But if you want a fresh start, this is a great place to begin. Jesus Christ, Lord of your life, the Word of God, reading it, heeding it, putting it into practice in your life, realizing this is the story of your journey. It's the story of my journey. We're all in a different place. Some of us have been walking with the Lord a long time. Some of you came to faith a week ago. It's great. Now we're all a part of the family of God. And in, in all families, you got young ones and middle ones and older ones. We're family. Some of you go, oh. I had a family and it was a wreck, man. <laughs> we're still a wreck, but we're getting better. <laughs> Jesus is coming back soon, but each of us is in a different place along this journey to maturity as Christians, and it has nothing to do with our biological age, nothing whatsoever. And all along this journey, we're going to learn lessons, we're going to stumble, we're going to fall, He's going to pick us back up again, and we keep on going. So in this church, this is a home, this is a family, this is where you get your wounds attended to, this is where you get your faith built up. I don't do that, it's the Word of God that does that. It is your openness to the Holy Spirit of God that does that. 
But I think all of us are looking for a transformational experience. Most of us in our heart of hearts are tired of the status quo because we know it doesn't satisfy. If you're feeling stuck in a place, this is a great chapter for you that begins for us actually in in chapter 8. A person must deny himself, Jesus said, to come after me. Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You have to die to chasing after the things of the world. This world is run by Satan. He is out to destroy. Why do you think fentanyl is the crisis that it is today? He is out to destroy all of those made in the image of God, and that represents every human on this planet. He hates us all, but most especially Christians. So do expect spiritual attack. Here's the good news. Greater is he who is in you now than he who was in the world. Jesus Christ sits on the throne of your life, and if he allows trials from time to time, they serve a purpose we may not be aware of, but we believe by faith. He loves us. He's going to take care of us. You know, from time to time, without trying to understand what's going on in your life, sometimes you just got to say, I don't get it, but you got it. I'm good. I'm good with that. that. That's childlike faith in its essence, isn't it? Let God be God. Verse 35 of, the, of uh, Mark 8, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. You can chase after everything in this world trying to fill that emptiness within. And you probably have. We've tried 10,000 different things. I don't know what you tried to fill that ugly hole in your life, that emptiness within. But if we were chasing after the things of this world, we came up empty-handed. And you don't find that deepest, innermost need met until you come to Jesus Christ. I, like you, looked everywhere I could. I didn't know where to turn. I was looking for God, and I didn't even know it. I was just looking for somebody to take away some of the pain, somebody to understand, somebody to forgive, somebody to give me a fresh start. I didn't understand anything. All I knew was I'm searching, I'm searching, I'm searching, I'm searching. I found nothing, nothing that satisfied long-term, nothing that fed the needs of my soul until I came to Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus means there in verse 35. Whoever wants to save his life, whoever is chasing after the things of this world, you're going to lose it. You're going to miss eternal life completely. But whoever loses his life for me, in other words, turns their back on the world and opens their heart to Jesus Christ and says, make my heart your home, they will save their lives for eternity. For what good is it for a man to gain the whole world, verse 36, yet forfeit his soul? Wealth can't satisfy or the wealthy wouldn't commit suicide. Stardom and fame and celebrity doesn't fill that need of the heart or they wouldn't be killing themselves left and right. Verse 37, or what can a man give in exchange for his soul if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation? Whoa, stop right there. That's why you can't find meaning and purpose and direction and the whole field in this world. Jesus described it as an adulterous and sinful generation. Adulterous because they chase after everything else but God. Have you noticed that? I mean, every time you turn on the TV, it's filled with everything. If you use this hemorrhoid cream, then you'll really be satisfied. If you take on this diet, if you lose 50 pounds, if you go on vacation to this destination, if you, do the, if you buy this car, you, oh, that'll satisfy. Really? You probably tried 100 different things that didn't satisfy, and that's what Jesus says. Because this world chases after everything else and doesn't want to turn to God. 
It is rebellious like the nation of Israel in its wilderness wanderings was. It was self-directed. It wanted to do its own thing. That didn't start with my hippie generation. It started all the way back in the garden when Adam and Eve decided, I want to eat of the fruit that's forbidden. And we've been eating of forbidden fruit ever since, wondering why it ultimately poisons us. I've got a smart little dog at home who generally eats pretty good, eats a lot. She's a puppy, but she eats a lot. She's dumb. She eats a lot of things. She'll go out in the backyard and dig up mushrooms. She'll eat squirrel droppings in the back, empty husks from peanut shells. And I'm going, what is your deal? And then she gets sick. And in sympathy, I go to the dog, duh. But we do that as humans just as well. We feed ourselves on this junk food and this junk food, and we, and we try to find our needs met in entertainment and social media and relationships and employment and, and jobs and the rest of that. And we go, yeah, I still feel sick to my stomach. The world cannot, it cannot meet any need that you have. The answers are found in Christ Jesus, and the sooner you surrender to him, the less painful life will become. Nobody likes pain, but there is a resistant spirit within the heart of rebellious men that says, no, I don't want to give over the control of my life to God. I can figure it out. I can do this. I can do that. I'll try this. I'll try that. And time and time and time again, we come up empty-handed. Well, Jesus said in verse 36 of Mark 8, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul, even if you had everything the world had to offer? You still forfeit your soul for eternity? That's a bad investment. Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory, his Father's glory with his holy angels. I'm proud of Jesus. I'm proud of Jesus. I saw that movie last night, The Jesus Revolution. I wasn't so proud of Chuck Smith or Lonnie Frisbee or Greg Lurie. I was proud of what God did. And he did an amazing work that took them all by surprise. And it's a story of people that were chasing after things, and they never found that hole of their hearts met. Chuck Smith had a small church and wanted more, but wasn't getting anywhere. He had the spiritual status quo down pat. He did what the world told him to do, his denomination told him to do, and he had a hole in his heart you could have drove a truck through. He was an unfulfilled pastor. Can I tell you a secret? Most of them out there are. Most pastors out there have a hole in their heart because they're questioning. I pour out love all the time, but who loves me? I pour out grace all the time, but I get no grace in return. I pour my life into ministry, and yet people reject the gospel of Jesus Christ left and right. I pray for that God would reach more souls, but I have a small church, and I'm stuck in a small community. I feel like a failure. Who ministers to those pastors? Those pastors struggle even being transparent because they know if I say that to my congregation, they'll fire me. If I tell it to my leadership, they're going to be looking for a new pastor. So they try to keep up the front. I'm okay. You're okay. When in fact, nobody's okay. You're not okay. 
Here's how to get that hole of your heart filled, pastor or pew sitter. Open your heart to Jesus Christ. Ask him to fill you every day afresh with his Holy Spirit. You want to know that God loves you. You need to know that you're loved, that God has a reason and a plan and a purpose for your life. We are on this journey together. The answer is in Jesus Christ. The ultimate goal that we're going to find ourselves with is him in heaven and us glorified. That's why Jesus said, forget about chasing after this stuff. This world, it won't satisfy. You'll wind up very disappointed. I had tried drugs. I had tried alcohol and sleeping around and everything else that hippies did in the 60s and early 70s. And I remember when a friend of mine at work told me about Jesus Christ. I couldn't get away from the guy. I mean, I was a mechanic's assistant working for Oklahoma Gas and Electric Company. I'm stuck under a big truck with a mechanic who's on on fire, spirit-filled Christian. I'm handing him tools. I can't get away from this guy. I just can't get away from this guy. Oh, Jesus loves you, and Jesus is the Son of God. And I'm just going, give me a break, you know. Is there any pagans in the shop? Please, let me be in a mechanic's apprentice to a pagan. And, and over time, he just wore me down with the love of Jesus Christ. He wore me down with his incessant and aggravating enthusiasm. He was spirit-filled and on fire, and he was a short, little, fat, bald-headed guy. He was 50 years old, and I'm going, what is your deal? How come you're not upset like everybody else? How come you're not down and depressed? How come you're not moping around? He's Jesus this and Jesus that and the Word of God. And he, you know, and he was feeding me all the time, uh, spiritual food as well as physical food. <clears throat> One day he said, is there any reason you can think of, Jim, that you shouldn't give your heart and life to Jesus Christ? I said, honestly, having tried everything else that I could think of as a, as a teenager, I said, no, I can't think of any reason I, I can't give Jesus a try. I've tried everything else. And he says, won't you pray with me? And all of a sudden, the walls went up. And I said, pray? Pray? <laughs> I've never prayed with anybody in my life, and I'm certainly not going to pray in front of you. I mean, you pray like the Pope for crying out loud. Me, I, I, I don't know. I have no idea how to pray. And he said, and he, the smartest thing in the world, he said, then just go home and talk it over with God. And he, and he backed off. And I went home that night. My home then, it was in Oklahoma City, and I lived in a 10-foot by 40-foot mobile home with three bedrooms. Do the math. Each one's about 7-foot by 7-foot. A bathroom so small, you opened the pocket door and you backed in. So poor, I had inflatable furniture. My groceries in the house, I had, I had 20 boxes of 25-cent macaroni and cheese. A bottle of milk to mix it with and a little butter. Couldn't afford butter, margarine or whatever that slime was. And every once in a while, I'd go really fancy and I'd cut up some hot dogs in it. I thought, this, I'm in tall cotton now. Went home that night after Bob Chandler had talked to me. And the Holy Spirit was just all over me because I knew I was so empty, so empty on the inside. And I remember praying like I prayed this morning. So real to me, so life-changing, so transformational. And I remember looking up at the ceiling in that dinky little 
used mobile home, and I thought, this is the stupidest thing I ever did. I'm talking to the ceiling. <laughs> and I said, God, I don't know if you're real. I mean, just being honest here. But if you are real, and if Jesus Christ is your son who died for my sins, then Jesus, would you come into my heart and life and save me from my sins and give me something worth living for because I'm really considering checking out. And he showed up. He showed up. And as soon as I opened up my heart and I prayed the prayer, I said, save me. He did. I didn't even know what that meant. I didn't know what I was being saved from. All I knew is I had an empty life. And in that moment where there was just that instant of transparency where I opened up my heart to the Lord Jesus, He came and filled that hole. And I've never been the same since. I, most of you have had that transformational moment in your life, but for those of you that haven't, oh, dearest, dearest friends, stop chasing after the things that you've already found out don't satisfy Jesus loves you so much that he gave his life to save you. Greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. Jesus loves you. I'm not talking about religion. Jesus died to save us from religion and bring us into relationship with the God who created this universe. And you go, well, Pastor Jim, I don't know if there is a God. Okay, tell me who created this stuff. Who created the universe? Well, I don't know. They told me in school I should believe in Big Bang. Okay. Who created the stuff that went bang? Who decided when it was going to go bang? How big it was going to bang? You haven't explained anything with Big Bang because the world has no answers. It wants to you to be dismissive of these questions. But you cannot have a creation without a creator. That's the bottom line. If you look at your wristwatch on you, you don't think, well, I think over billions of years this accidentally all just came together and evolved, and here I've got my Timex watch. Now, that sounds really foolish, but that's exactly what evolution teaches you about us. We came from apes, and over millions of years we evolved. Really? Some of us may act like apes. <laughs> Some of us may think like apes, but the bottom line is they're a different species. They're a different species, and God created all that is, everything that there is. The world doesn't want you to believe in God, but you still know and you sense in your spirit, man, I feel this, this drawing. God, is there's something that's drawing me to something more than I've experienced so far, and His name is Jesus Christ. He is alive today. After his death, he was buried. And three days later, he rose from the dead, showed himself alive to over 500 eyewitnesses, and then they watched him ascend back into heaven. And you go, whoa. Can I tell you, Muhammad didn't do that. Buddha didn't do that. Confucius did not do that. The Hindu deities, they didn't do that. Only Jesus Christ did. There is no other way to be saved. And Jesus Christ, but whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Oh, it's so simple, so easy, and that's what Jesus is saying. What can a man give in exchange for his soul? And then he said in chapter 9, verse 1, then he said to them, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. And that is what happens next, starting in verse 2. 
but he had been talking to his disciples. Now, you'll remember they had been up in Caesarea Philippi, uh, where there had been at the foot of the mountain there, Mount Hermon. It's a series of mountains that gets higher and higher in elevation. But there at this place called Caesarea Philippi was a place of idol worship. In fact, there was a series of three large temples there in the time of Jesus, a temple to Zeus, a temple to Pan, and a temple to uh, another deity over on, on the right side of things. And behind the, the temple of Jupiter was a great big huge cavern, well, probably the, the size of this, of this sanctuary right here. But in the back of the cavern, it went down into a bottomless pit. And do you know what that was, pit was called in the first century? The gates of hell, the gates of Hades. So when Jesus said to Peter, when Peter said, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, that's who you are. When Jesus asked them, who do men say that I am? Well, you could be X, Y, or Z, you know, some great religious teacher. And then he said, but who do you guys say that I am? And Peter blurted out under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, God revealed that to you. No man did that. And the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. That's what binds us together as family. That's the protection that you and I have, who, those of us that are spirit-filled and have given our heart and life to Jesus Christ. Otherwise, this demonic world will eat you alive. You know many unhappy people, many unfulfilled people. And I got to tell you, the answer is Jesus. Having looked everywhere in the world and having been on this journey with Jesus now for 50 years, I can look back and go, man, it's been the greatest journey of my life. And I've never been the same since. I'm certainly not perfect. I'm a, I'm a work in progress to be sure. Ask my dog, my wife, my children. But we're on a journey that will ultimately take us to heaven and we will be in glory and rule and reign with Him forever. And that is, to me, the glorious <clears throat> end of our destination then. And that's what Jesus is saying. As He said to His disciples in verse 1, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. And, at, and then Jesus takes them to the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus Himself is transfigured. But there's more transfiguration going on there than with just Jesus. These three disciples that He takes with Him, Peter and James and John, they are forever changed. Nothing was ever the same after that. The kingdom of God coming with power. I tell you what, I long to see that with my own eyes. Jesus' transfiguration, I think, was a striking preview and a guarantee of his future coming in glory. And it so deeply impressed Peter that more than 35 years later, he wrote this, We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we, me, I was an eyewitness to His majesty. I was there, man. I saw this. It was real. Most people in the world today are wondering what in the world is real and what's not. Can a 10G network really meet the deepest needs of my heart? More likes on Instagram or whatever they've got on that format. We were eyewitnesses of His majesty, for He received Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to Him from the majestic glory saying, This is my 
Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came down from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. There is a God in heaven. If you have ever wondered, is there really a God? Yes. How do we know? Jesus. Jesus came down. The Father spoke audibly at his baptism. The Father spoke audibly at this transfiguration of Jesus on the top of Mount Hermon. Now, unless you believe that Jesus was a master ventriloquist, the Father is speaking from heaven. He spoke in the Old Testament innumerable times to not only Moses and other patriarchs. He spoke from the top of the mountain and the entire nation heard him. They heard the voice of God. God is alive and well. While the world denies him, we serve a risen Savior who rose from the dead to prove the reality of God himself. Who else has raised from the dead? Who else has been glorified as we're about to see Jesus do here? So at some of them would stand, that were standing there, would not taste death before they see, <clears throat> excuse me, the kingdom of God coming with power as Jesus is transformed. After six days, verse 2, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up to a high mountain where they were all alone, and there he was transfigured before them. Six days, they had been in this place that the uh, Arab community t today calls Banias that, because they don't have a P in the, uh, uh, in the language of the Muslims. They, they don't have a, a P in their alphabet, so they substitute a B. It used to be called the place of Pan, the Roman god, the pagan idol. And so they call that place the place of Banias instead of Panias. But behind this grotto that's called the, the gates of hell, behind all of these, if there was a path in the first century that is still there to the day that leads behind there that winds its way through these mountain valleys to the top of Mount Hermon in the background. It's, uh, you, I'll show you a picture of it here uh, at, at the end of service where they could take this six-day journey and hike all the way up this 9,300-foot mountain. Ah. They were on a journey. Boy, there's no better journey than to be on one with Jesus. I got to tell you that. He knows where he's going. He knows where the path is that you're supposed to take. You should ask him regularly. Should I go left? Should I go right? Should I take this job? Should I not? Should I be in this relationship? Should I do a thousand different? Ask. Keep on asking. It was a glorious time. Six days later, why does he take just Peter, James, and John? Have you wondered about that? Hmm. These three would be the pillar of the church. James and John, of course, are brothers. But others have suggested perhaps Jesus kept his most troublesome children closest to himself. Peter, you have to admit, was pretty impetuous. The guy did some really stupid stuff. It seemed like every time he opened his mouth, it was only to change out feet. And he'd stick his feet in his mouth every time he opened it. You know, in the garden, he's going to haul out a sword and start whacking people's ears off. There's a real swordsman for you. Not his forte. James and John were called the sons of Boanerges. No, that wasn't their father's name. Boanerges means the sons of thunder. 
We're talking about two brothers that had some real anger management issues. And they didn't have any tranquilizers back then that we know of besides wine. And so these, so I'm thinking, I can understand why Jesus, you guys aren't going to get along with anybody else, so why don't you come with me? You're my most troublesome children. You have the most to learn, and yet there is going to be a transformational experience that takes place in your life that will make you a pillar of the church to come. When God sees you, He doesn't see who you are. He sees who He's going to make you. You're a person with potential you can't even imagine. You can't even imagine. I couldn't even describe it to you. But there is in store for you a transformational process on your life's journey that will culminate in you being in heaven with Him. You're a work in progress all along the way. Stop chasing after the things of this world. People say, well, have you gotten the latest iPhone? Who in their... I mean, if somebody had told you 20 years ago, hey, here's a little cell phone and it's only $2,000. You should buy one. A person would say, are you kidding me? $2,000? I don't need that. And yet today, most people can't imagine life without a cell phone. Maybe if you turn it off, you would find that you have a life. Why is Jesus taking these guys to this remote location? Because sometimes you have to get away from the noise of the world. There are so many distractions, TV, social media, cell phones, a thousand other things that vie for your attention that all leave God out of the process. And we give ourselves freely over to the gods of technology, don't we? Oh, I've got to check my Facebook page. I've got to check this. I, gotta, I can't live without my cell phone. That means you don't have a life. Jesus takes these guys away from all the masses, all of the people, all of the technology, all of the entertainment, all of the distractions of this world, and says, I want you to be on a journey where it's just you and me. And sometimes you have to make a quiet time carved out of your own space to make time for God. Maybe it takes place in the morning where you sit down with your Bible and you just read a, a chapter here or there or you just ask God to reveal Himself to you and you spend a little bit of time in prayer. Maybe turn on the praise and worship music and have it playing in your car on the drive to work. There's lots of things you can do to feed your spirit. Lots of things. I don't want you to be programmatic about any of it, but I want you to earnestly seek God. We live in an age of endless distraction. A world that tells you, you will never be fulfilled until you own this or have this or make this amount of money or have this social status or a thousand other things. And, and everybody knows it's a lie because most of us have chased after that stuff and it hasn't satisfied. Every single piece of advertising on the television is to get you to buy something so that you will feel more satisfied. The world is not capable of offering you satisfaction. It cannot meet the soul's deepest needs. The Satan is described in Ephesians as the prince of the power of the air. Think of what travels through the airwaves. Microwaves, TV waves, radio waves, social media, satellite waves. Satan is the prince of the power of the air. Ultimately, he is the force at work behind those things, not God. And yet those are the very things that the world is trying to sell us on today. 
your greatest needs can be met in Jesus Christ. So stop chasing after all the idols of this world. It's really not an issue of whether you have a cell phone or not or a TV or not. Don't miss my point. They don't answer the deepest needs of your heart. All they provide at best is distraction so you don't deal with your messy life. Well, I'll just watch TV until I die. I'll just turn the radio on until I die. I'll do this. I'll do that. You know, just be, why do people do that? They just want to numb the pain. They just want to numb the pain, and they don't know where else to turn. So they're turning to those things and drugs and alcohol, a thousand other things that we tried in my generation 50 years ago. And we found out then they don't work. They don't work. What needs to take place is a transfiguration, a transformation. They're atop Mount Hermon now, seven or 9,000 feet, 232 feet in it's the tallest mountain in all of Israel, so anytime the word in Scripture used a high mountain in Israel, that's the only mountain they thought of is Mount Hermon. And they were all alone. Sometimes you just have to get alone with God. You can't hear a still, small voice with the TV turned all the way up. You can't listen to a still, small voice with all of the noise of the world in your ears. Getting away and being alone with the Lord is the best place to turn your life around. In the quietness of my own little mobile home, 10 feet by 40 feet, talking to the ceiling, I was taken to my own personal mount of transfiguration. And it wasn't Jesus that was transformed, it was me. I believe that with all of my heart that every one of us needs a transformational experience. God wants to see his Son glorified in you. God wants to do things you can't even begin to imagine, but it requires your submission. Now, you can fight Him on this. You can keep chasing after all the stupid stuff that you already know doesn't satisfy. It's been a good part of my life chasing after that stuff. I'm trying to save you the trouble. Don't waste your life. God wants to bless you. He wants to use you. He, if you're going to be transformed, it'll be because you decided to get alone with God. You have to be intentional because, and you've got to take yourself apart from the noisy crowd, the din of this world, and the endless distractions that are out there to be alone with God. Some of us feel very uncomfortable with the thought of doing that. Well, he may require something of me. Maybe he wants me to repent of my sins. I'm, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with that. I'm not ready yet. You'll never hear the voice of God with the TV blaring or the phone going off constantly or your eyes locked on your computer screen. I want to be alone with God. And yet, you think about this, of all the times in your life that you've been alone and you felt that loneliness pressing in, were you really alone? Isn't God omnipresent? Yeah, we just didn't realize He was there. But God is in all places at all times. He is there. He's as near as the words that leave your lips. But He's waiting for you to open your mouth and use those lips to surrender to Jesus Christ as Lord. We enjoy as His children. We enjoy His presence. But I, I encourage you to regularly carve out a quiet time just so you can be alone with the Lord and with His Word. 
time of prayer with no TV, cell phone, media, radio, Google, Facebook, Alexa, or Siri to get in the way. Uh. And it says that Jesus was transfigured before them in verse 2 in the presence of these three disciples. It's where we get our word metamorphosis, a change not only in appearance, but a change in essence. He put on his glory for the first time in front of his disciples, and it, they, it, they were blown away by that. He was transformed. Who you are going to be in heaven is not who you are now. You will not carry the limitations of this human flesh with you or the scars or the wounds or the hurts or the broken bones or the infirmities or the bent back and the endless arthritic pains. <laughs> Amen. <clears throat> I get a new body someday. You know, I will be transformed. His transformation reminds me there's a transformation waiting for me someday. Day by day, I want to be transformed by His Word and His Holy Spirit. But I know that someday, I'm going to get a brand new body. It's going to be sleek. 30-inch waistline. I haven't seen that in a day or two. I don't know what we've got in store, but the Bible guarantees us this. When we see him, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So we get glorified bodies. Oh, my, my, my. It's the hope of the church. Jesus' glorification ensures ours. It says in Romans 8, those that God foreknew, he knew who was going to get saved and who was not. Those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. That's what God wants to do in your life today. The reading of his word and submission and prayer and praise and worship leads you to be looking a lot more like Jesus than you were before. So that Jesus might be the firstborn amongst many brothers. And those that Jesus predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. You're forgiven. It's just as if I had not sinned ever. That's what justified means. And those he justified, he also glorified. As far as God's concerned, your glorification is a done deal. It's on the books. It's going to happen. And Jesus' transformation guarantees ours someday. It's the hope of the church. Now, for those of you that are teenagers, you have no idea what I'm talking about. But anybody in here over 50 goes, oh, yeah, I could use a new body. Oy vey. Come, Lord Jesus. Yeah. A body that doesn't sin anymore, a body that's not temptable anymore, a body that'll never be sick again. Oh, I'm looking forward, even more than a new body, I'm looking forward to being with the risen Lord. I want to see Jesus. I want to see him in all of his glory. I want to see him surrounded by the angels. I want to see him seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty. I need a transformation. I need to be transfigured every day. Every day I want that. I need that metamorphosis going on in me. I want to be changed into another form. I want to let the flesh go and the anger and the self-centeredness and all that ugly stuff that's mentioned as the fruit of the flesh in Galatians 5. And I want to instead be filled with all of my heart. I want to be filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. That's the fruit of God's Holy Spirit. How does that happen? It's a transformational process. Jesus said, if you seek me with all of your heart, you'll find me. 
God had said it in the Old Testament the same exact way. So it is up to you and I to do the seeking. You keep the cell phone and the TVs on, you're never going to hear the voice of God. Never. Unless you pull yourself back from the noisy crowd and its worldly influence trying to change your worldview, you won't hear the still small voice of the Holy Spirit saying, this is the way wherein you should walk. Walk in it. The voice of God calling you to Himself. He has going to, He has glorified us, He is going to glorify us. What shall we say in response to this? Paul writes to the Roman church. If God is for us, who can be against us? What a promise of God. Romans 8, just prior to that, it said, Now, if we are his children, then we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. What are we going to inherit? Everything. We chased after it in this world, but what chance do you have of inheriting the universe? I don't care how rich your daddy is. You're not getting there. But someday we will inherit all that God has ever created. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory, we're going to share in God's glory, in Jesus' transfiguration, that kind of glory we're going to share in that? Yeah. Someday your face will be as radiant as his. He called you through this gospel, Paul writes to the Thessalonians, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has a transformation in line for you and I that can be appropriated fresh every day. But it's up to you to appropriate it. It's up to you to say, I will follow you, Jesus, on this journey up to the high mountain where we can be alone and meet with God. I will follow you. I will invest myself in this journey. Dear friends, John writes, the church in 1 John, we, now we are the children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. The transfiguration leads to a changed life, changed priorities, change in goals, a change in worldview, a change in priorities. Now God is priority one, but we are going to rule and reign with him in glory. Second Timothy, here's a trustworthy saying, if we died with him, spiritually speaking, we've identified ourselves with his death, burial, and resurrection, we will live with him also. If we endure... We will also reign with him. Wow. We get to reign over this universe on behalf of the Lord. Jesus promised the faithful remnant at the church at Thyatira in Revelation 2, to him who overcomes, overcomes what? This world. Who overcomes the weakness of this flesh? How? By the power of God's Holy Spirit. That journey starts with opening up your heart to say, Jesus, would you be my Lord and God and Savior? To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. Have you ever wished when you see this nation amok or the world amok, have you ever wondered what it would feel like if you were king of the world for a day? I would have to wiener schnitzel open 24-7 to start with. I would let everybody order things free that they wanted to at all of the fast food places. And then when our guilty conscience got the best of us, we'd all head to Whole Foods and Sprouts. That's not heaven on earth. 
the kingdom will be ruling and reigning over. There's a part of you that says, man, if I was president, I'd do it different. Man, if I was governor, I'd do it different. Man, if I was a representative or a senator, I'd do some, I'd do it right. I'd stand up for Jesus. If I were king for a day, oh boy, things would be really different. Someday you will be. All that you go through in this life is preparation. We are now princes and princesses of our Heavenly Father, who's the King of the universe. But He will elevate us to be kings and rulers with Him in the millennial kingdom over this earth for a thousand years. So you get to decide, well, who does what in Colorado Springs, or maybe you'll be ruling over a fountain. or You know, I'm thinking just two palm trees on a Hawaiian island somewhere with a hammock. That's all I need to rule over. I'm good with that. Just sitting there eating coconuts and stuff. It wouldn't... mm. I don't have a lot of interest in ruling, but there is a part of me that says, if I had the power, I'd make it better. If I had the power, I'd change things. I'd do away with the immorality and the stupidity taught in our schools today in the name of education. I teach our kids reading, writing, and arithmetic instead of... I need to stop right there, please. (laughs) It would be different. There's a sense of justice within you that says, if, if I had the power, I would make this a just world, a righteous world, a world that's pleasing to God. If I had the power, and someday you will. But everything you go through in this life between now and then is preparation. It's part of your training. Just submit to it. Don't hate it all. It's hard. School always is. School always is hard. That's where lessons are. You go, man, if God would just speak to me going through the trials of this life. Can I tell you, the teacher never talks when a test is in process. We're being tested. We're being tried. Your faith is. It's okay. God will get us through every trial, every test, everything, every temptation that we ever face. We will rule and reign with Him. In Revelation 20, it says, Blessed and holy are those who have no, have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. That's on this earth with Jesus sitting on His throne in Jerusalem. You and I will be over the states and the cities and the towns and the countries and the principalities. You and I will be ruling and reigning over that. We'll be the judges. We'll be the priests. We'll be the, the pastors, the mayors, the, the whatever else God needs. We will do that. But in Revelation, there's something interesting, and I'll bet you never read this. Revelation 22 transitions from the earthly kingdom of Jesus Christ, where you and I rule with Him for a thousand years, and it translates us into the eternal realm. It says this in in Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, that's clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great city. The street of the great city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever 
and ever. So you and I will be ruling and reigning with Jesus on into eternity, not just for a short time here on planet Earth. Uh, we'll be ruling and reigning over this endless and ever-expanding universe whose dimensions boggle the mind. I mean, I can't even grasp the distance from here to Mars. And yet, if you go outside the, the ring of Pluto, the sun looks like a big bright star in the sky, and that's it. It doesn't look like a sun at all, and it's, yeah, there's complete darkness out there. That's just in our own little solar system. And we're on one of the outlying arms of the Milky Way galaxy that contains oh, somewhere between 200 and 400 billion stars just like our sun. And you go, man, that's a lot of big distance to rule over and reign over. Oh, that's just one tiny little galaxy amongst at least 130 billion other galaxies. And some of those galaxies seen in the Hubble Space Telescope's pictures have galaxies moving away from us at eight and nine times the speed of light. I thought nothing could exceed the speed of light. Yeah, they thought nothing could exceed the speed of sound, too. They thought that man would never travel more than 40 miles an hour because that was the fastest horse known to man. And now we measure our cars in what? Horsepower. Interesting world we live in. But this universe will continue on and on and on forever. There will be someday a new heavens and a new earth that will be expanding and new stars and planets and being formed all over the place. And then people ask, well, are there other people in this planet or in this, in this universe? Tell you when I get there. I don't know. I know this. Jesus died once for all sin and he did it on planet earth. So I suspect the answer is no. But that doesn't mean we can't colonize the rest of the universe when we get the chance. Well, let's see what God has in store for us. It boggles the imagination. I always thought watching Star Trek, I was born about 200 years too soon. To go boldly where no man has gone before. I wanted to be Jean-Luc Picard. <laughs> that may be closer to reality in our future, only we may not need starships to get there. So Jesus is on the top of the mountain. He was transfigured before them, metamorphosized. Verse 3, his clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Moses and Elijah who were talking with Jesus. Moses and Elijah? Yeah, the law and the prophets. That just makes perfect sense. Didn't Jesus say, the law and the prophets, they are that which testify of me? Well, now they're in the flesh. Here they are up there. And you go, well, why Moses and Elijah? Why not, you know, two other guys? Well, not only do they epitomize the law and the prophets perfectly, but neither one of them finished their earthly ministry. Neither. And it says in Matthew's account of this that they were talking about Jesus' death and burial and resurrection. They were talking about what lie ahead. You and I couldn't be saved unless Jesus went to the cross. And there should be tears of gratitude every time you think about that, not just at Easter. When you realize the price that God was willing to pay to secure your salvation, it should express itself in us with a broken and contrite heart and, and such gratitude as the world has never seen. Thank you, Jesus. You saved me, and I didn't earn it. I don't deserve it. But you poured out your love and your grace and your mercy. And all I had to do was open up the door of my heart 
Elijah, you'll remember, was taken to heaven in a chariot of fire, surrounded by angels and chariots and horses of fire. And Wow. And Elisha watched him go into heaven and in his mantle come wafting back to the earth. He picked up that mantle and started carrying on the ministry of Elijah. He didn't get to finish his ministry. Moses didn't get to lead the people near the promised land because when God told him to speak to the rock and it'll pour forth water in the desert, he got so mad at the people, he decided this is a great opportunity to give them a hellfire and brimstone message. And he said something really stupid. How long must we, me and God, put up with you? And so God said, come here. We, we need to have a little chit-chat, Moses, <clears throat> because you've misrepresented me. You're not going to go into the promised land. You'll die, die atop the Mount of Mount Nebo there in what is today present-day Jordan, the Transjordanian Mountains. He never finished his ministry. So they show up here at the Mount of Transfiguration. You know where they show up again? Revelation chapter 11. Keep your finger here. Flip over to Revelation, last book of the New Testament, chapter 11. Fascinating chapter. Now, after being, John was told to uh, measure the, the temple and what was going on in the, during the Great Tribulation period, it says, starting down there in verse 2, but he says, but don't measure the outer court, don't measure it. It's been given over to the Gentiles. You mean the Arabs that control the Temple Mount today? Yes. And they will trample on the holy city for 42 months. That's three and a half years. And I will give power to my two witnesses. Literally, the word witnesses is martyr. Martyr? And I will give power to my two witnesses, the Lord says, and they will prophesy for 1260 days. That is exactly, according to the Hebrew, 360-day lunar calendar. That's exactly three and a half years. They will prophesy for three and a half years. Wasn't Moses called a prophet? Yes, he was in Deuteronomy and in Exodus. Well, wasn't Elijah called a prophet? Yeah. So both of these guys here in Revelation 11 are prophets. They prophesied for three and a half years, and they're clothed in sackcloth. Remember what John the Baptist wore? Sackcloth, just like the Old Testament prophets typically did to show the fact that they were divorced from the world. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. You get the idea there. Their ministry is fruitful. The oil is emblematic of the Holy Spirit. The lampstands were called to be the light of the world, as Jesus was. Verse 5, if anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. Whoa, Elijah called down fire from heaven. I remember that one of the kings sent a guard of 50 men and said, you tell that prophet to get over here. I want to talk to him. And Elijah said, if I be a prophet of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. <coughs> it happened. It happened. All of them turned to charcoal briquettes. What did the king do? He sent another 50 guys. Slow learner. The 50 guys go, you, man of God, king wants to see you right now. Well, if I be a man of God, may the fire of God come down out of heaven and consume you and your 50 men. <coughs> it happened again. They're all charcoal briquettes. What's the king do? He sends another 50 men. Now, you and I are not the slow learners. That king was. Sometimes we need at least three times to get something right. The third guy comes, and he notices all of the charcoal briquettes all around him, and he goes, 
Oh, please, have mercy on me, prophet of God. The king wants to see you. I don't want to be here. But I'm a family man. Got little ones at home. <laughs> don't do to me what you did to these guys. And Elijah said, no, oh, okay. And he came down and convicted the king of the sins of idolatry and adultery that he had, had committed. Call down fire from heaven. That's what happens in Revelation 11. So if anyone tries to harm them, fire comes out of their mouth, devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have the power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they're prophesying. Ooh, Elijah did that, sealed up the heavens for, what, three and a half years in the Old Testament. Wow. And they have the power to turn waters into blood. Who did that? Moses. Moses, one of the plagues against Egypt, and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Moses did that. So who do I think these two guys are that never finished their earthly ministries but get to in the book of Revelation? I think it's Moses and Elijah. You know, there's something more important than talking about the book of Revelation end times. And it's found back here in Mark 9, a transformation. I think you and I, Really got to get along with God on the mountaintop if he's ever going to use us in the future like he uses Moses and Elijah. He's not done with them yet. Whatever you think about where your life is at today, God is not done with you yet. You may need a transfiguration. You may need your own personal metamorphosis, but that's where God shines. All you've got to do is follow him to the top of the mountain. Where you're alone, you're away from the distraction of the world, and you get on your knees and you're there with the Lord Himself. You open up the Word of God, you got the praise and worship music going, you got your little quiet time notebook there, you're earnest in prayer, you're seeking His face with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength at the start of every day. And it is there at that altar that you're transformed. What's the purpose of transformation? To equip you for what lies ahead. You don't know what lies there, but I can tell you this, God does. And so he's equipping you today for what lies ahead. You just have to trust the process. Trust in the love that he has for you. So back in Mark 9, then verse 5, Jesus, or Peter said to Jesus, Peter, hoof and mouth disease, yeah, he's got it in spades. Sometimes you get so nervous you just blurt out stupid stuff. Because you feel like, well, i got to fill in the gap here somewhere. One of the biggest mistakes that junior pastors make when they first get into the pulpit is they're scared to death of a silence. And they don't know whether to twiddle their thumbs, put their hands in their pockets, or go, uh, uh, That's a guy who's not comfortable in his own skin. Trust God. Trust God. Brother, what's a congregation going to do? Stone you? I mean, what's the worst that can happen? I think you sound more like an idiot when it's, your sermon is a bunch of ums and ands instead of filled with the Word of God and the power of God by the Spirit of God. Peter, verse 5, said to Jesus, Rabbi, teacher, it is good for us to be here. So, you know, it seems like a good idea. Why don't we put up three pup tents for you guys? The king of glory in a pup tent. What are you thinking, Peter? He's probably thinking about maybe we should build a tabernacle and maybe Jesus is rebuking him because he's already here. He doesn't need a tent to dwell in. This is a building. This is not the church. 
you are the church. You are filled with the Holy Spirit of God. You are the ones who are going to be planet changers, life changers. You're the ones that are going to lead your kids to Christ. You are the one who's going to set the example for your grandchildren. You are the ones that are going to teach your coworkers what it is to be godly. Why? Because you've been to that Mount of Transfiguration. You opened the door of your heart at one point in time and said, Jesus, be my Lord and God and Savior because I'm barking up all the wrong trees and cut them up empty-handed. I'm not happy. I'm not fulfilled. I'm not content. Would you fill my life and fill that big hole in my heart? And he will, but not until you ask. James says, sometimes you have not because you ask not. The world runs from God because it wants you to pursue all of the wrong answers. The God of this world does not want you in touch with Jesus Christ. Jesus, by the power of His Holy Spirit, is already in the world today, convicting the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. We don't need to build fancy tabernacles or churches. We don't need gold-plated faucets. I don't want you to tithe so I can buy a new jet airplane. But, you know, on the other hand, maybe you want to. I don't know. You know, I, I need a jet airplane like I need another hole in my head. Rabbi, it's good for us to be here, so let, let's put up a tabernacle. We don't need a tabernacle anymore. The Jews had to find out the hard way. Not only did they not need the tabernacle, they didn't need their temple either. So when they made their temple an idol, God had to tear it down. He won't tolerate an idol. They needed to know that God fills the universe and fills the human heart that's open to Him. When God comes knocking on the door of your heart, let Him not find a closed door there. Jesus said in Revelation, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. But some of you think if I ignore it long enough, he'll just go away. But he keeps on knocking. And he comes back a day or two later, and you hear the knocking again. He comes back a year or two later, and the knocking again. You find yourself in a cataclysmic place in life. And then you hear the knocking again. He did not know what to say, verse 6 says. They were so frightened, then a cloud appeared and enveloped them. And a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. What's implied in that is listen to him. Pay attention. Do what he says. Don't just listen to his words. Isaiah was told in the Old Testament, you know, to these people out there, Isaiah, you're just a singer of pretty songs. They're listening, but nobody's changing. They want you to entertain them in church, but don't ever ask for life change. Don't ever ask for renewed commitment. And yet, that's what Jesus himself asks for. His Father in heaven, as his voice booms from heaven above to the mountaintop, listen to him, heed him. And suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them except for Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Jesus never prophesied his death without prophesying his resurrection. He's alive today. Can I tell you, Muhammad is not. Buddha is not. The Hindu deities never were. But the God we serve is alive. He is alive. 
And they kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. What's that mean? Well, there's plenty of Old Testament examples of resurrection. Here's the problem they had. If you're actually the Messiah, how can you die? Because Isaiah said your kingdom's going to last forever. Well, they didn't read all of Isaiah. It also prophesied his suffering and his resurrection. But they missed that part because they didn't want to see that part. We want Jesus to come in to give me stuff. We pray so that God might help me win the lottery. We want God to be a genie in a bottle that doesn't cause me a lot of problems, requires nothing of me. But every once in a while, I'll take the lamp out and go, <laughs> hoping that the genie comes out of the bottle, and I ask him to give me something, and he does. That's a horrible picture of God, but a lot of people have it. So they don't want to worship God in between crises. They don't want to bow the knee. They don't want to attend church. They don't want to read their Bibles. They don't want to pray. They just want to keep the genie in the bottle until they need them bad enough. God is not mocked. He is the Son of God who came to save you from your sins, and that is your greatest need. So they weren't sure how the Messiah had to die and what it meant rising from the dead in regards to their messianic ideas. Verse 11, and they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus replied, to be sure Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come and they have done to him everything they wished just as it is written about him. He's, now, it says in Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5 that before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord that Elijah would come. The great and dreadful day of the Lord is what happens in Revelation 6 through 19 called the end of the world kind of stuff and the battle of Armageddon and all that stuff there. And we see Elijah there in Revelation 11. He does come before the final great day of the Lord's judgment. We do see him coming. And yet, in another sense, he says, John the Baptist is coming in the power of Elijah. He is coming as the forerunner to the Messiah. He's already come. And as Elijah was rejected by King Ahab in the Old Testament, so John the Baptist was rejected by his generation, and Jesus Christ himself rejected by this generation. I was driving down Powers Boulevard the other day, headed north, and I was amazed that in the middle of a Thursday afternoon, it looked like rush hour traffic. And I thought, man, if all of the traffic going up that hill and all of the traffic in my rearview mirror just went to our church, we wouldn't have enough room for them all. And they're so busy, and they're all going somewhere, and I'm thinking to myself, don't you guys have jobs? Aren't you, you be at work? And they're all driving and in such a hurry and cutting everybody off in road rage and saluting you with a single finger. And, and we have come to accept that as normal. This world doesn't want Jesus. It wants to do its own thing. It's living in rebellion. Maybe that's you. Maybe that's you this morning. Oh, I'm, I just want to go my own way. Really? How's that working out for you? 
Has met the deepest needs of your heart? Have you surrendered to Jesus Christ? Is your life turned around? Do you still cuss like a sailor, do drugs, get drunk? I mean, is there any life? Have you been transformed? Where's the transformation? You say you're a Christian? Where's the transformational process? Because Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. It's those that embrace Him as Lord and Savior that are delivered from their sins, that are set on a new course in life's journey. It is a, an amazing journey, but it has to begin with submission to the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. You know, Jesus led these three guys, not the rest of them. How come? Because they're going to have to believe their weight of their testimony and accept it by faith. Hmm. When you share what Jesus Christ has done in your life with other people, they're going to have to accept that by faith. But what you should be presenting them is a life that has changed, that's been metamorphosed, if you will, to use the original language. I would like to show you a picture as Jesus, the great shepherd, according to John chapter 10, leading his sheep along this, this path with their encounter to God. Uh, Jesus had said in Psalm 119, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. Oh, what illuminates your path? Are we following Jesus on this journey through life? In Psalm 119, it says, I gain understanding from your precepts, O God. Therefore, I hate every wrong path. In other words, there's lots of wrong paths out there. There's only one path that goes from Caesarea Philippi to the top of Mount Hermon. Only one path. But many in the world today choose the wrong path. They pursue money, success, the endless pursuit of entertainment and distraction, trying to find meaning and purpose and direction, something to kill the pain or at least distract me from the issues of my life I don't want to face. They will crush you. If you take them on yourself, you've got to give those to the Lord. Jesus took his disciples on a path that led from the idols of this world at Banias. In fact, I'd like to show you that picture, the Temple of Pan. If we could pull that up and dim the house lights. This, you see the, the building on the left? That was the Temple of Zeus. Do you see that big cavern behind it? That was called the Gates of Hell, or the Gates of Hades. And it was in that day and age, a bottomless pit. It's had several earthquakes that have collapsed the roof, and it's filled in a large part of the hole. But how far down it went, nobody knows to this present day. Could it go down to the heart of the earth? Who knows? But that was the temple of Jupiter on the left, the temple of Pan there in the middle, other temples and idols, and all over the face of that rock are all of those niches cut out for all of the Roman idols. So in this setting, Jesus asked his disciples, amongst all of these false gods, all these false and wrong paths, who do men say that I am? Well, some of them say you're the prophet, some of them say you're Elijah, you know, some of them say you're John the Baptist come to, to back to life. Well, who do you say that I am, Jesus said. Now, can I ask you that question? I don't want you to answer me out loud, but who, do, who is Jesus to you? Some guy in a history book? Some religious figure from 2,000 years ago? Who's Jesus to you? Well, Peter stood up and said, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ, you're the Son of the living God. Is that your confession? And if so, when's the last time you confessed it? Well, I'm a Christian. Not all that glitters is gold. 
If there's not a transformed life, the words that leave your mouth ring hollow. You can say, oh, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. Is He your Son? Is He the Son of God to you? Is He your Lord, your God, your Savior? Personally, do you know Him? Not know about Him. Everybody knows about Him. But do you know Him personally? So Jesus takes His disciples upon Peter's confession. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. Then Jesus says, then let's leave the idols of this world behind us. And let's go to a high mountain. And I want to show you that high mountain and what it looks like on this. Jesus takes them from this place. Now, that whole temple complex is at the bottom center of your screen there. That's where that whole process is. You can see that large valley to the left. And in the very, very, very top, in the back, at the very top of the screen there, that's Mount Hermon. That's the summit of Mount Hermon. It's a mountain range, but they started off here at the foot of Mount Hermon, then took six days to take a very particular, singular, and unique path to get into the presence of God. And up there, Jesus was transformed. The transfiguration took place. He was metamorphosized. He, they got to see his, Him in all of His glory for the first time in their whole lives. But they were the ones transformed by the experience. They would come down, change men, the one they went up. Can I tell you, every time you go to a quiet place, a high mountain and meet with God, you're, you come down a changed person. And that's by the will of God. But look how far it is from that place called Banias at the bottom center, taking the circuitous mountain path all the way up to Mount Hermon. That's your life journey in a nutshell. It's hard and sometimes it feels like it's all uphill. Yeah. Here's what I want you to do. Follow Jesus. That way you won't take a wrong path. Any of you ever walk up the bar trail to Pikes Peak? I did about 30 years ago. <clears throat> Haven't been back since. So I've grown in wisdom along with my age. I also know there's many different paths to take off to the left or the right going up there. And you can take a wrong path and you'll never make it to the top of Pikes Peak. You can bail out at the halfway point and come back thinking that you've done a Magnificent work, but you never made it to the top of the mountain. That's where God dwells. That's where God dwells, in the quiet place. But you've got to follow Jesus on your life's journey. You're never going to get where God wants you to be. That's a 9,232-foot mountain. And Jesus, as your guide through life's journey, <laughs> makes the journey worth it all. It's uphill, yeah. It's hard, yeah. Will he get me to my final destination? Absolutely. Am I going to be transformed? Yeah. Someday will I share in his glory and rule and reign with him forever? Yeah. And we'll look back 100 million billion years from now on this very morning and say, it was all worth it. It was all worth it. Jesus took me in that very place, that very morning, and he led me on life's journey to higher ground. My life has never been the, the same since. So many wrong paths out there. You know, Romans tells us to seek God. In, in quoting an Old Testament passage, he writes the Roman church and, and said, Moses describes it in this way, the righteousness that is by the law, the man who does these things will live by them, but righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart, well, who will ascend into heaven? That is, bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the deep, the deepest parts of hell in that grotto? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. What's it say? The word is near you. It's even in your hearts. It's in your mouth. 
the word of faith that we are proclaiming, that if you, here's where it becomes personal. Listen, I'm talking to you. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. All your sins washed away. But believing is a continuous and ongoing action. It's a transformed life. And it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the Scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all richly blesses all who call upon him. That's your responsibility and mine. Your journey can begin right here this morning. He's opening up your heart and simply saying, Jesus, would you make my heart your home? I've made such a mess of my life. I've taken so many wrong paths, so many detours, and I keep the TV and the radio and the cell phone on ultra loud so I can be distracted from how ugly this world really is. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, Hebrews 10 tells us, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, having our bodies washed with pure water. God wants to baptize you afresh this morning. All you have to do is want it. Let us draw near to him. Submit yourselves, James tells us, then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. You can't go the way of the world and the way of Christ. You follow one master. No man can serve two masters. Peter reminds us the end of all things is near. Would you stand and close with me in prayer as the band comes up. There's a part of me that wants to shout at the top of my voice, show me your glory, Lord, like you did Peter and James and John. Like Moses asked of you all the way back there in Exodus, Lord, show me your glory. And you did. You hit him in the cleft of the rock and you passed before him. Then the Lord came down in a cloud, stood there with him and proclaimed his name, Yahweh. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. Lord, as you showed Moses your glory, as you showed Jesus your disciples, Peter and James and John, your glory, show your glory to us. Take us to the top of the mountain this morning and transform us. We need a metamorphosis, Lord. Forgive. Forgive us our sins. Fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit, Lord. Show us your glory. Transform us now, Lord, so that we can rule and reign with you forever. Give meaning and purpose and direction to our lives. Give us a fresh start this morning, Lord, as we give our hearts and our lives to you as living sacrifices. In Jesus' name, amen. As the band closes in song, we're going to have the elders and, and some deacons and pastors up here. If you'd like to pray, get right with God. This altar is right here at the top of the mountain for you this morning. We'd like to pray with you. God wants to give you that fresh start. He wants to transform your life. All he needs is your permission. And if you're brave enough to walk down here and to ask, God will meet you right here. Don't be so stubborn and self-willed and hard-hearted that you keep your distance from God this morning. 